wow, how much more talented and effective can we be forecasters as as avalanche educators when we have this place where we're like fully drawing on the talent of the whole group. There is a lot of opportunity as well to like expand where avalanche education happens and sort of expand our um, our thoughts about where we can reinforce these messages and like what needs to happen where. Yeah, I don't know. The future of avalanche education maybe looks a lot like a lot more practicing, a lot more critical thinking. Hi, this is Liz Rigg-Meter, and this is the Avalanche Hour podcast. You're tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Kelly McNeil. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by Tin Barrel Brewing and InterWest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Today, we have a great episode for you with Liz Riggs-Meter. Liz and I talked about her journey into the world of avalanche education, some thoughts and advice around risk management instruction, the role of public health in avalanche education, and what that might look like in the future. We also dive into some important topics speaking to inclusion specific to avalanche educators. I hope you enjoy the episode as much as I enjoyed talking with Liz. I know I learned a lot from her and I hope you do as well. All right, Liz, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I would like to start out with you just introducing yourself. Um, If you could tell us a story, where you grew up, your various experiences and how you got to be where you are today. Um, Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Uh, So I feel like because this is, I'm a backcountry skier, my like journey begins maybe when I learned how to ski. Um, and it tells a little bit about me, but I actually learned to ski in Korea. So I'm an Air Force brat. We were stationed there in the late 80s. Um, and that was probably the most I skied as a young person. Um, then we moved to Nebraska after that. And I grew up in the Midwest, like largely driving to Winter Park once a year to go skiing. Um, and so I, you know, it was a th- thing I did, but I didn't really identify as a skier. I actually identified maybe as a sailor. So I raced sailboats in college. Um, and I really thought when I moved to Seattle, I'd have a real job and I could afford a boat, my own boat, and I would get better at racing and I'd keep traveling and doing that. Um, but instead in my last year of school, I met a skier, um, who didn't believe that I was a skier (laughs) and he, um, I had a year left in school in Kansas and he was in Vail and I would drive every weekend to go see him. And I spent like a season sort of following him around, um, and then did a bunch of moving around, moved back to Korea for a while. Um, and then we moved together to Telluride and I kind of say that that's like where I really learned how to ski. Um, we ended up back in Seattle and I worked as an engineer for about six or seven years. And that has been, um, a hugely influential, I think in like the, the, my worldview and that like, I'm inherently a problem solver and I sort of approach things with like a problem solving mentality and approach. Um, and then my job there was also really influential in seeing how people impacted 
design more than technology, technological innovation. And that kind of becomes a theme of all the places I've worked afterwards is seeing um, the impact people have and how little attention we actually give to people's impact on like the end results or the quality of our education or the productivity of a workplace. You know, I did like kind of the Seattle engineering thing. We bought a house in Seattle, but it turned out to be at the height of a housing bubble. Um, and then I quit my job about two months before like the biggest financial meltdown and crisis since the depression. Um, and then we, I noodled around for several years and had enough savings to kind of coast on that. Um, and that included working an odd variety of jobs, ski patrolling at Crystal. I worked as a Knowles instructor, a guide in the Cascades, um, an outdoor educator, like for elementary students. Um, I had my daughter in that time period. And then also with, so that included barely being employed the first year that she was around and kind of facing that reality of like, man, we have a third person to provide for. And we're, um, we're not doing that very effectively. Um, so I think that what that kind of gave me, it like sort of, sort of opened my naive and earnest eyes to the privilege that I had um, that I could like kind of barely hang on that way. And then like reality, in reality, still be holding it together. Um, and that gave me clarity too on what I could and couldn't control. So I, I don't know, I've had somebody tell me that it's a real like outdoor experiential educator approach of just like, I can't control that. So I put that aside and this is, this is what happens or this isn't what happens. And so that's another part, I think uh, a layer on my worldview of like not really working, but a fairly long period in my life in which we're just kind of like just figuring it out. Um, so somewhere after, towards the end of that, I went back to grad school at the University of Washington and got a master's in education. So while I was in grad school, I went to the Northwest Snow and Avalanche Summit and Tom Murphy, founder of ARI and the executive director at the time was giving a talk. And I forget the exact, but it was kind of like, what are we missing? What are our professional blind spots? Like, who are we not connecting to? And this is very unlike me, <laughs> but for some reason, I think just like armed with the the euphoria and the knowledge of like, I'm getting a graduate degree. <laughs> I just marched up to him and was like, hi, I, uh, I like, I'm a backcountry skier. And I can tell you a lot of ways that like education principles could really help out um, the efficacy of avalanche education. Um, and we, we still keep referring back to that kind of, I don't know what almost seems like a chance meeting. It's like very rare in your life where you can point to like one instance that you sort of changed the course of your life. But that really is one of those, like for whatever reason, prompted me to go up and talk to him after that. Um, yeah, so that got me connected to Aerie and I started out building some online learning courses. And then that's over the past seven years sort of developed into now I am the director of rec programs, which is everything from the design of our recreational curriculum. And so that's the design of a risk management tool and then all of the educational supporting uh, curriculum around that. And also the training of instructors to teach that doing the sort of managing the very long game of telephone that we play here at Aerie. Great. Well, that was really insightful and pretty fun for me because you know, <laughs> we're working together. And so it's, um, 
I've often wondered what your story was and that was really, really cool. And so thanks for sharing. Um, so Liz, with your expertise and your experience within the industry, can you speak to inclusion and, and really how to approach it? Yeah, so, you know, my ideas around inclusion and kind of the, the torch that I've picked up or like maybe the bone that I have to pick around this is, it just really goes back to this idea uh, or this realization I've had that kind of the connecting theme to all of these seemingly very unrelated jobs that I've had um, has been remarking on how people really impacted the the efficacy of an organization or the the dysfunction of an organization and 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 not really the talent like you know there's some base level of skills that needs to be there but really when organizations were working well and people were working well that the sum really was greater than the parts and it wasn't a team of like the best of the best, but it was a team that worked well together and brought others um, others along with them. Um, so I don't know, it's kind of a like a team that's, it's not about bringing up the best of the best, but a team that is able to attend to what's missing in a really like compassionate and thoughtful way that comes from a place of trust of like, I see that you need this skill. I have this skill. I can give this to you. And then like, then there's two of us performing this and thinking about this. And, you know, you and I were talking about this and at, at ARI, um, we all work virtually. So there is this tendency for us to sort of work in our own silos and echo chambers of whatever. And sometimes I'll have some problem usually around writing or something and I'll call somebody up and it's, it's amazing how just like sort of noodling around on something. And it's not like any one of us is some like expert writer, but the talking it through, um, having two heads like sort of address that makes it so much better. So it's just that that theme of that kind of like people aspect has like repeated in all these disparate places, right? Like in a and a ski patrol and like how that works at a place like Knowles where you're in these like really tight knit groups, but you're in a really diffuse workplace because you have this like layers of management that sort of extend from Wyoming all the way through throughout the world, really. Um, and they have no idea in some ways what happens on these really tight courses. And so just seeing how organizations do or don't manage that um, is just like really influenced them like what I see is the importance of an inclusive workplace. Um, so when those tight-knit groups work well, they work well. And I think the problem is when you're not part of that tight-knit group <laughs> and we see how that happens. And I feel like um, this is where it comes up of, in case people don't know this, I'm a biracial Korean, um, grew up in the Midwest. And like because I was an Air Force brat and grew up in military communities were like largely homogenous as biracial or multiracial people. Um, like I never gave much thought about my race until I went to college. And then I was labeled as Asian. I didn't even get Korean. It was just like under the umbrella of like this whole entire hemisphere. It was like Asian. And I was like, kind of leaned in. I'm like, fine, that's who you name that I am until um, I think my last year in college, I was taking Korean language classes because I was getting ready to move to Korea. And I had some 
snotty Korean girl tell me, but you're not really Korean, which is kind of left me in this place of like, well, then what am I? Like, I don't seem to get admission to either of these groups. But at the same time, I do have admission to those groups. Is like I noted that like I do enjoy an incredible amount of like perhaps just middle class privilege of like being able to like sort of make it with not very much work or just use like I just I have access to things. So I recognize I think it's like that ability to sort of never be in and never be out that I'm always kind of like this um, just sort of floating bebopping amongst all the groups. Um, and so it, it gives me that perspective of like when you're in, in the in group, how that works. And when you're out of the out group, how crappy that feels. <laughs> and so my approach to inclusion is really, um, and I will get to why this is related to avalanche education and in our industry, but my approach then really is about like, wow, how much more talented and effective can we be as risk managers, as guides, as, um, forecasters, as, um, search and rescue as avalanche educators when we have this place where we're like fully drawing on the talent of the whole group rather than this like excellence from a few individuals who like pull a few other individuals along like that like individual to individual transmission is like a really um, is effective in small groups and is doesn't scale it just it doesn't scale and that's what we're reaching this point of there are so many people well there's so many people in this country, period, right? There's just a lot of people on this planet. A lot of those people are going to the back country um, and they all deserve information and education, um, guiding all the things to help them like be successful in the way that they want to be successful and, and want to enjoy the back country. And so that we have to scale up to that. And that means we need to create these like productive workplaces. So I really see inclusion about um, trying to have as many people be in that in tight group as possible. And so right now at Aerie, we're, uh, we don't look like a lot of other, I guess, organizations in the industry that were predominantly run by women. And so I think that like that approach to inclusion starts with what we know, which is ways that we have felt excluded or othered um, in the world, but also within this industry. And we start by addressing what we know. Well, like if we experience this, others are experiencing being outed and othered and outgrouped in the same way. Um, so it, we're starting there because that's what we know. Also, I mean, there's funding that people have a lot of enthusiasm to support that. So my idea is like, we'll start with that and use it to build other things. So whenever we build these programs, it's with an eye of not like, how does this bring more women in, but how does this create an inclusive place so that we're not lining up these like people who have been wronged and like, we're going to deal with this in order. Um, it needs to be a, like, we keep taking these steps so that the circles get bigger. So instead of thinking of it as a line and like each person gets to take a number <laughs> to come into the group, how do we make the the circle of what's included bigger and bigger and bigger. Are you seeing a shift and a change through all the, these efforts? I see a shift in the people that I interact with. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling piece, right? I mean, some of it is that I'm older. Um, so there's just a, um, 
either wisdom or just not caring what other people think as much, which is an incredibly freeing way to move through the world. Um, you make more connections. And so you have people who have similar um, ambitions, I guess, and desires. And, but I, I mean, I also have a lot of conversations with like, let's say with other women who, you know, they're like, I didn't have anyone to talk to about this. You know, I thought this was all in my head. I was just, I have just learned to stuff this. And like, um, that's just the the price of admission of working in this industry. And I think that there, I have seen a shift of like, people are coming to expect, you know, this like first wave feminism approach is like no longer acceptable. People have come to accept, like, I don't need to just like, put all of me aside in order to be here. Like I can take up space and that, I think that's like on a whole bunch of levels, not just for women, but again, like being a woman, that's like how I identify from, but I think that people are feeling more comfortable and supported to like show up as who they are and to take more space. And I, you know, we still have a a long way to go. Like, one day we will not all say, well, we all go to the mountains because dot, dot, dot. And then an assumption that like, we're all here for the same reasons that we all understand that our culture needs to grow and evolve. Again, going back to that co-centric, those circles need to expand that idea of what mountain culture is and why we go outside also needs to expand to include people. But I think that you're seeing people show up who feel supported enough and confident enough to say like, this is who I am and this is why I'm here. And I deserve to be able to take up space as well. So also with your expertise and your background um, with um, a master's in teaching, what are your thoughts or advice for the pedagogy around risk management instruction and our understanding of how to teach that? Yeah. This is where I'm like going to get really nervous that somebody (laughs) has more (laughs) pedagogical, I guess, teeth than I do, because I'm kind of speaking from like anecdotally, like I am a practitioner. Um, I, I do not have a lot of academic chops, but I speak. So I speak from experience and I speak from, you know, Classroom K-12 teachers talk a lot. There's because they work in silos, right? You're like in a in isolation with a bunch of small people all day. So they they discuss a lot in public forums and share their knowledge about how to improve this craft of teaching. And I just see there's so many parallels and so many opportunities to learn from that, to like not have to reinvent that wheel. But as I mentioned before, you know, we, we are still really steeped in kind of an apprenticeship tradition of like, I have this skill set and all this expertise, and I will train these people beyond, you know, that come after me, I'll take them under my wing, provide this one-on-one mentorship. And even though we've scaled up quite a bit, I think our approach is still very similar. So it's this um, approach to gaining expertise of like, I'm this expert, I'll tell you um, what I know, and sort of like, get you into my worldview. And that doesn't translate as well. I think when we're, when we talk about like only having like a recreational traveler who may be like very new to the winter back country. Um, it's, it's just not, it doesn't translate to be like, I have this experience as someone who spent 20 years 
in the mountains in the winter trying to talk to you and like there's a there's a very big mismatch there and so i think there's a lot that we have to learn from again from classroom teachers you know i like the adage about just because you know something doesn't mean you know how to teach it and like you would never think that like um a researcher in physics like a physics researcher shouldn't necessarily necessarily be teaching like high school physics right those are people inherently recognize those are sort of two separate things but we're not there yet with a uh, with i think avalanche education um and that's not to say that like a very experienced practitioner isn't an excellent teacher but it's we i think we are still learning more universally how to um how to teach risk management the analogy that I keep using is kind of like what we've learned around teaching math and numeracy and sort of like mathematical skills. And so let's say 40, 50 years ago, that was really focused around memorization of math facts. It was just simply like, you need to know your addition, subtraction, your multiplication tables, and you just need to do that in your head. And now I'm seeing, so this is the benefit of COVID and having your kid at home. And I have a, you know, I had a first grader all last year and I'm listening to how they're teaching math. And I knew this in the back of my mind that this is how we do this now, but there's so much more around explaining how they get there. Um, and so it's like, well, you could count five plus four on your fingers, but then how, how many different ways are you like counting that on your fingers? How are you adding up? Like maybe you take, you know, five plus five, you know, is 10. And so then one less than that is nine or, you know, however, but it's many, many ways to get there. And they recognize that the, the building block is kind of this like math is a language to explain numerical thought and thinking. And so any skills that help with that explaining and thinking about your thinking and that translation is like building blocks to numeracy. I don't know what that parallel is in avalanche education, but it's definitely there is something there about, okay, well, what do we understand? It's not just simply telling you about avalanche phenomena, weather, and then like some decision making. There's actually like how we gain um, fluency as risk managers that we, I think there's still so much that we have to learn about that. And I think that there is a really cool opportunity to sort of borrow from the frameworks of um, research around literacy and numeracy, because look how far that has progressed in the teaching of that in the last 50 years. I think I think similar gains can be made in, in avalanche education as well, or may, maybe more broadly about risk management education. I think that's a very interesting perspective and I definitely wish that I would have been taught the why instead of the memorization of it. And I can also speak to the fact that um, just because you know a lot about a subject doesn't necessarily make you a good teacher. Mm -hmm. Like as a college professor, you can consider that. <laughs> um, do you see or where do you see the role of uh, public health in avalanche education? Yeah, so I'm going to speak from another place of like an armchair practitioner's understanding of public health, although I do have to say like all of us, our baseline understanding of public health and its role is like exponentially increased in the last two years. 
Um, but I, I think that that like that public health approach is also going to be part of this kind of new or evolving pedagogy. And that is understanding sort of the, the, the many levels of education that happen. You know, I think that one of the distinctions of like public health versus medicine or like what happens between you and your doctor is sort of that thinking about things at both an individual and a population level. Um, and so then you're thinking about education then, right, at an individual and population level. So we really educate the individual. And I think there are opportunities, and this is the role that avalanche centers play, is educating at the population level. But that's when you start thinking about, like, okay, well, what basic messaging is, like, the important thing to get out? And I think, you know, we see this from Avalanche Canada a lot for many, many reasons. Like, culturally, they're sort of there. They have one avalanche center who is also connected to their education, but then they can they can say like, wow, there's a lot of impact if like the only messages you're getting out is like, don't stop in a run out. And like, if that is the only educational message we get out for the next two years, but like look at it at a population level that can save this many lives or prevent this many accidents. Um, and that's like very, very different, right? Than at an individual level, if you told someone like, here's what you need to know. Don't stop in a run out. People will be like, you didn't teach me anything. So I think that there is a lot of opportunity as well to like expand where avalanche education happens and sort of expand our, um, our thoughts about um, where we can reinforce these messages and like what needs to happen where. So again, this is all part of that moving us away from this like one-on-one -on -one education and recognizing that that happens um, a lot of places. Like I, something we talk about at area a lot and is moving more into our instructor training is trying to get people to shift their worldview of thinking um, from like kind of this line of like subject matter expertise. And then the instructor is in the middle that sort of serves as like the pipeline or the faucet of that subject matter expertise. And they sort of meter out how it gets to the individual. And we call that teaching and learning. And really it's more of like a triangle where the subject matter expertise exists out there and the individual has access to that independent of the teacher. And the, you know, in avalanche education, we have at most like seven days with them. So really it's about kind of influencing and setting them up um, both as an instructor, their ability to like learn from their environment. But I think then like as a, as an industry, um, there's a lot there's a lot we can do to kind of work together at that to impact how people are learning um, when they're not explicitly in a class. Yeah, I think I mean obviously this is music to my ears. I mean that's that's how we got connected is you talking about public health, I, I believe the the virtual ISSW last year. Mm -hmm. And it just rang. I was like, oh, ding, 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 because <laughs> we have all these theories and all these practices in public health that we know have been tested and are useful. So can and how do we utilize those in, in the avalanche industry with messaging and education and behavior change theories? So um, I think the more that we can connect the two, the, the more effective and the more advances that we could make. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so with that, where, um, where do you see avalanche education and what does it look like in the future to you? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we're going to see a lot more like 
a more online learning, right? I think that like we finally hit the tipping point with the past two years of like what's acceptable and just people like sort of getting over that hump. And so like, I think online learning is like largely a pretty accessible outlet and inaccessible as being still high quality. Um, I think we've seen a lot of like high quality education, um, like in general, but, and then, you know, avalanche education come out of online formats, which then sort of frees up, um, at least in the area model, you know, instructors that we, you know, area doesn't directly employ or maintain like the full, um, I guess, sphere of like experience and certifications that you need to be an effective educator. We really focus on familiarity with the area curriculum and being an effective teacher of that. And there's still all these other skills that you need, right? And so I think that um, removing some of that like didactic instruction piece presents an opportunity for um, you know, folks like the, the National Avalanche Center and the Avalanche Center to kind of like control or like uh, provide more consistency in that messaging and consistency around definitions and vocabulary and like just simply how to use their forecast products. You you remove one piece of that like game of telephone um, and it frees up then instructors to kind of do what they do, which is be effective coaches one-on-one on the field so that we move more towards um individuals having to do less uh like knowledge instruction and instead we're moving people into that kind of like skills and decision making and practicing those like practicum sort of things so i i think that we are on the path to getting getting to that where people can get people sort of generally always have access to some of those basic building block educational pieces and then you really view like in-person education as as a practicum I think that also like we're going to see a lot more opportunity for education to happen in places where people are accessing information. So I think that that's like more, more like passive education with products. So when you buy a split board, there's, you just have access to a lot of that content. Um, You see some of it now on Avalanche Center websites where more of the text is hyperlinked. So if you don't know a certain word or you don't know what something looks like, they can, you know, point you to media that helps, you know, help flesh out kind of that, um, that forecast there. Yeah. So I think that we maybe will then move, you know, we were just talking about this earlier that we like move away from avalanche instruction being kind of the the nuts and bolts of like the content and really move into some of those more critical thinking, kind of the decision-making. Maybe we all build skills at coaching people to take things from one context to another. So this is like my, um, I don't want to call it a superpower, but I think it kind of is. It's also like a huge liability they have that I think everything is related but I've had all these like odd jobs and I'm like, well, these are all obviously related to each other. And this like thing that happened here is totally related to this thing, which enables me to do this thing over here. But I think as a good teacher, like you really need to be able to do that to say like, Oh, you work at XYZ big name financial company. Like you actually have a lot of experience as a risk manager. It's just that you use this language around it, or you're only talking about it in terms of money. And, maybe you don't value failure as much because it's just money. It's not 
you know, and so it's really just shifting the context of like, well, what are the consequences? But the framework is still there. And so I think the more that we're able to um, move into some of these kind of like meteor complex things, the more that's going to drive us also to understand how that connects to people's life. Like we've had two years of practicing some really hard risk management, you know, with like really serious consequences, right? With COVID. Um, so I think that that gives just a lot of opportunity for good teaching, which is that connecting to the audience, making this like content really relevant to something that they can use and know how to use and know how that connects to like things that they've done before. So yeah, I don't know. The future of Avalanche education maybe looks a lot like a lot more practicing, a lot more critical thinking um, and more greater availability of a lot of that content that takes up so much of the, what we see as the instructional time now. Yeah, and what I've kind of noticed within the past year with with that is the availability of the content before and after the course, and not just during the day in the classroom or whatever it is. And so I think having that resource has been a, a huge step um, for the students and for the instructors <laughs> as well. Yeah. Excellent, Liz. Well, that was some really, really thoughtful and really interesting um, insights and expertise and um, experiences. Um, one last thing, do you have any lessons learned, mentors, or a story that you would like to share with us today? Um, yeah, you know, we, I said I would come up with a more eloquent way to put this, but I've been, I've been really thinking about like what, who are the mentors in my life? And I, I it, mentorship and mentors has always been kind of like a, a cringy word for me. <laughs> I maybe shouldn't admit this in a place where I'm like trying to encourage lots of mentorship, but it's like hard for me to envision some of these really impactful people in my life, like putting them on this like pedestal, calling them a mentor, because it was, it was like, I really like the phrase friendship that I've heard some people coin where it's a, it's a mutual respect relationship. Um, and then, and that doesn't, it sets it up in a more agreeable way to be like an ongoing lifetime thing. And so I just really think about the workplaces I've been in that have been really productive where I've learned a lot. And that's, you know, those places that have been really built on trust where people have um, trusted in my base level of competence. <laughs> and so then recognize like skills that I don't have, it's like, Oh, well, you just need to learn them. And so that person's like, help kind of fill in the blanks. And then I, you know, can offer something else. And so, you know, like folks like Dallas Glass comes to mind, I think, because I've worked quite a bit with him and we have two sort of separate but overlapping skill sets. And there's been a lot of like uh, more like explicit exchange of like, he'll take me on a, I, I learn some forecasting skills and then I like provide some instructional coaching. Um, and so I think about a lot of relationships like that, where I call, you know, I would really more call them like colleagues and peers, but they are like incredibly impactful people that I've learned so much from. Um, and so I really, I, I think about like from those, um, relationships that I've had now I feel sort of obligated, like I should name all of those, but from like a lot of those 
um, really meaningful relationships that I've had, then that has, that has really driven my, like wanting to recreate that, wanting to be that for others. And then just wanting to create situations where both where I work and other places where I have influence, where that opportunity is available for others. If nothing else, just sharing the story and like giving people kind of another idea of like what mentorship can really look like. And sometimes that's more beneficial rather than you trying to find one person to sort of latch onto is engendering a place in your, in your workplace where you have all, you view all of your colleagues as like opportunities for continued learning and enrichment in addition to the support that they provide, you know, as your colleagues. Um, Yeah. So it's something that, you know, is for me has been uniquely about working I guess in the outdoors and, but specifically in the avalanche industry. And I think it's because it's such a multi um, discipline area that, that we do have kind of this tradition of like people bringing in lots of different expertise and like being able to sort of meet in that, like some big overlapping Venn diagram. And so there is that kind of mutual respect of like, competence and like lack of something in one area is just because you don't have it yet. So I, I, um, try to set up that sort of situation, I guess, and like the places where I, where I work and like hope to always be able to kind of engender that in my work workplaces. Absolutely. Well, Liz, um, that has been, this has been really fun. And I very much appreciate you taking the time out of your day and and talking to me and to to the audience. Um, I think you've offered a lot of thought provoking um, ideas and I hope that um, you enjoyed. Yeah, thank you so much. This was always, they're always really great conversations and I appreciate you um, asking some great questions. Well, have a lovely day. Thanks. You too. Thanks. Well, I sure hope you enjoyed that interview. And thanks so much to Liz for sharing with us her expertise and experience. Thanks again to Vice and Avalanche Control, our good friends at Tin Barrel, as well as Interwest Insurance. Today's fun theme music was by Age Diamante. Thanks also to Mike T for the amazing artwork. Check him out at MikeT.com. Special thanks to Caleb for giving me the opportunity to contribute to the community. You're the best, Caleb. To ensure you don't miss another episode, please follow us on Instagram at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. We also can be found on Facebook. If you enjoyed this episode, please take the extra step to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you listen and tell a friend. Send your feedback to the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. Make sure to tune in for our next episode dropping February 1st. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there.